Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me, makes me stronger. Jillian Potter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Mike, happy to be here. And you are an Olympian, you are a cancer survivor, you're a mother, and you are wife to Carol, who I am also going to be interviewing and releasing an episode with her after this one. So I'm super excited to have you on and to be fortunate enough to call you guys friends. This is great. No, it will be interesting too. I'm excited to uh, you know hear what comes of this story and then listen to Carol's and you know see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So Jill, I'd love to start out by asking you, how did you become an Olympian? That's a good question because I can like dive into how I started playing rugby and everything else. And I think for me, the biggest thing that sticks out is raising my hand and taking a risk. So I was playing rugby for Team USA on the 15th team for about you know, five or seven years before the Olympic announcement in 2012. And could you share a little bit, sorry to interrupt, could you share a little bit about the 15s versus the other squad numbers and how that works in rugby? Yeah, so there are two different types of rugby, rugby sevens and rugby 15s. And the number refers to the number of players on the field at one time per team. So it'd be 15 on 15 or seven versus seven. And 15s is like a game of soccer and very territorial, an 80-minute match. Whereas sevens is the same field, so 100 meters by 70, seven on seven, and it's a 15-minute match, played tournament style. So that's a much faster-paced game, a lot of one-on-ones, kind of like the sudden death of rugby, I think, because you can you know, win or lose a game in a matter of seconds. Which is the rugby that you think of if you think of like New Zealand, Australia, sort of that sort of international competitive non-Olympic rugby? Oh, I mean, I would say if you've ever seen Invictus, that's a very good movie to relate to rugby 15s. That's 15s. Yeah. And so that big scrum, lots of people on the field, that's, you know, rugby 15s. And that's incredibly popular all over the world in New Zealand, South Africa, England, you know, everyone, everywhere. And so you started out playing 15s, is that right? Yes, in college. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And uh, I was kind of not a traditional sevens player. Right. I was a little bit slower, identified decision maker or playmaker, you know, and so you kind of box these players in by what do you look like? What's your skill set? And is it transferable to, you know, the speedy game of sevens? And so, yeah, I mean, no one really thought that I would be able to play sevens. I remember asking a few people like, hey, what do you think about me doing this? And they're like, yeah, well, Julian, you're not really a sevens player. And um, (laughs) I was like, you know what? I'm going to raise my hand anyway. And, uh, you know, funny enough, I I was coming back from my um, neck injury. So I broke my neck in 2010. And it was my first USA camp. And was that a rugby injury? It was. 
Yes, yes. It was right before the 2010 Women's World Cup, and I was just named co-captain for that squad. And we were doing a test match before our residency to really gear up for the competition. And it's hard to explain in, in lingo, right, But or without using lingo. But needless to say, neck injuries in rugby don't happen that often. And it was a very crazy like accident. <laughs> I walked off the field and it was fine. It derailed me for about a year in terms of making it back to rugby. And when I first started playing rugby, it was in college just by chance. You know, I was tapped on the shoulder and walking across campus and invited to play the game. And then when I did decide to go out, it was tackling and fitness. And I was like, yes, I'm never leaving. And then oddly enough, when I was making my, you know, jump to sevens, I emailed the USA coach and said, hey, I'm coming back from an injury. I heard about the Olympic announcement. I would love to have a shot. He's like, okay, great. You've got one shot. Come to this practice. So I showed up and it was tackling and fitness. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was good at those things. (laughs) So I ended up um, getting awarded one of the first professional contracts for women's rugby. That's amazing. Yeah. So I would say, long story short, how did I become an Olympian? I think I took the risk, you know, kind of pushed myself out of that comfort zone because why not? You yeah. know, what's the worst they could, they could say? And you broke your neck and then you came back anyway and, and kept doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so the Olympic announcement was announcement that sevens, women's sevens was going to be in the Olympics. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And that would be the first time ever for women's rugby to be in the Olympics. And for men's rugby, it was in the Olympics about 100 years ago, um, or more now when, I, when I'm thinking about that, but it only was showcased one Olympics. So it was very new for rugby in general to be showcased at the Olympics. That's awesome. Are the men's and the women's game more or less exactly the same? Exactly the same. Yeah. Same pitch size, same ball, same time, um, same rules. There's nothing that is different between the men and women's game. Gotcha. Which is another reason why I think rugby is a superior sport. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. So how long from the time that she started playing rugby in college to the time that she got invited to join the women's national team? How many years was that? Three months. Oh, that was three months. (laughs) Oh, okay. I thought you had been playing for a while before. This is where it can be confusing because Team USA has different rankings. Got it. So um, by age grade. So I made my first Team USA as an under-19 player um, within three months of playing the game. And then was kind of pulled through this pipeline of age grade programs. And I was capped in 2007 for Team USA. So that means that was my first international appearance representing or wearing the red, white, and blue, you know, against England. And let's see, if I had been playing... I guess about two years or a year and a half before I was officially capped as a USA player. Got it. But making the team is a little bit different. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So how long until you made the Olympic team, I guess? I guess, let's see, um, in 2012. So I started playing rugby in 2000. Okay. So six years. Yeah. And when you broke your neck, was that the first major challenge that you had to overcome and come back to the sport with? I think athletically, yes. Yeah. And um, that was my first injury. Well, I guess, you know, my first major injury. I think my other injury besides that was a broken finger 
that doesn't straighten. I think you remember this. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a compound dislocation. This is actually on my first USA tour against England. So as I mentioned, getting capped, I, we were warming up and I caught the ball wrong and just took off my finger. Oh. <laughs> I grabbed it, put it back into place and said, hey, doc, you know, can I have a bandaid? And she's like, not in, unless you tell me why you're bleeding. And I was like, hmm. I don't really want to, <laughs> but I did. And so, uh, you know, I got care in England while I was there. And two weeks later, we were like, hey, we're still here. Let me just play. And so yeah. they put me in, wrapped my fingers up and it was fine. Wow. So what was it like when you got the broken neck diagnosis? It was interesting. I think I was devastated for a while. I moved back home. So I was living in Minneapolis at the time, training for the World Cup, moved back to Albuquerque. And I was probably in you know, a very self-centered place for about four to six months. And it wasn't until my friend, I was, you know, venting and, you know, being, oh, what was me? And talking about how I didn't want to go support my team at the World Cup because I wasn't going to be able to play. And I didn't want to, like, have a neck brace on, carry a backpack and, like, do all that. And uh, my friend Han was like, listen, it's not about you. And you just spent four years with those women. And what are you going to do? Turn your back on them. You know, like you were named co-captain. That is not what leader does. And I thought, man, wow. And that, honestly, that, that kind of advice changed my perception of being a leader for Team USA and just like how I showed up day to day for my team. And so I did travel to London and I, and I supported the girls and, you know, gave them, um, we do this jersey ceremony for every match and was able to present the jerseys to the girls. And that was a huge honor and privilege. So really big learning curve for me. And I think um, honestly set the foundation in terms of how do I react when something else happens, yeah. right? I had a roommate who was majoring in sports psychology at the time. She was getting her master's at the U of M. And I remember going to her like, you know, as a head case <laughs> athlete, I'm um, having this big injury. And she's like, Jillian, you can only control how you react to things. And like all these little messages that honestly um, really gave me so much knowledge and experience when I did have to face cancer. I was able to do it in a much more graceful way, I think, because of that injury. Wow. When in your athletic journey did the cancer diagnosis initially come? Yeah, I was in 2014. So I was just at the height of my career. I won a bronze, well, we won a bronze medal in 2013 in uh, the Rugby World Cup Sevens in Moscow. And I was just competing in the 2014 World Cup for Rugby 15s in Paris. Now they found the tumor um, a few months before that. And they said, hey, listen, you're really young. You have no family history of cancer. You don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't have any of these tall tale signs of someone that would be diagnosed with cancer. So go ahead, you know, and go to World Cup. Well, World Cup is four to six weeks in duration. And from that time, I believe my tumor went from two centimeters to 10 by eight by five, which is about the size of your hand. And I played the entire World Cup with the tumor in my mouth and it was hard to breathe. Um, my voice had changed. I was sleeping all the time. I couldn't even tell you anything about that World Cup except how tired I was. Wow. Like I remember playing and I remember feeling like thankful that I was so fit and had the foundation to you know perform and play with cancer. But also, I really wish I had you know 
advocated for myself more or knew more about cancer. I didn't, I was so naive about it. Like, oh, a tumor. Okay. Whatever. You say it's benign. Okay. Like, cool. And kind of tunnel vision towards Paris because I missed the 2010 World Cup. I needed to make it. Yeah. Right. And I did. And I don't know if that's, you know, I don't um, live in the past, sure. right? About what, what I should have done or could have done or what ifs. But if maybe if I hadn't been so hyper focused on going to 2014 World Cup, I might have been able to take out the tumor when it was smaller and probably have a better prognosis overall. But hey, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> focused on what you love. Yeah. Yeah. And I did it, right? That was a big goal of mine. Yeah. Just make it back to the World Cup. I don't think anyone really, really knew that or could expect that I would have you know, a very rare and aggressive cancer Sure, right at the age of 27. And could you tell that the tumor was growing aggressively when you were out there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would try to take pictures <laughs> and send it to Carol or, you know, show my athletic trainer. And they're like, listen, we don't know. Like, you know, we don't know what to tell you yeah. because we're not doctors, you know. And um, so I just kept moving on, kept doing it. And uh, finally scheduled the surgery for when I got back and had the tumor removed, of course, not with clear margins and found out it was cancer maybe a week later. And then specifically synovosarcoma three weeks later. Wow. Yeah, it's a very misdiagnosed cancer. So it takes a long time to figure out what kind of cancer I had. And it, it was an aggressive form of cancer as well, right? Growing that quickly? Yes. Mm-hmm. And generally with that kind of size, you worry about, you know, metastatic disease and things like that. And for me, I was very fortunate. It was localized and we started chemo, I think, or we flew down to MD Anderson and really kind of got the game plan, moved back home to Denver and started treatment, I think, within two weeks. And you mentioned, you know, talking to Carol while you're out at the World Cup winning your bronze medal and Carol being your wife now, at what point did, did Carol enter the picture and how has Carol as a partner affected your athletic and, and cancer journey? Yeah, so Carol and I met, funny story, I moved from Albuquerque, right, where I was rehabbing my neck injury to Denver to play rugby because I knew that's where I wanted to train for the next World Cup. And Carol had moved from L.A. to Denver for a job and, and we basically moved to Denver on around the same day. And if you play rugby, the first thing you do is find your rugby team, right? Because it's your source of connection and your friends and your support network. And so we both showed up to practice at the same time. And, and that's how we met each other. And let's see, that was in 2011. In 2012, I asked her to marry me, I think within nine months of us dating, maybe less. <laughs> and then... Um, I was offered the contract to move to San Diego in 2012, February. And I think I proposed maybe 2012. Carol, probably not. May. <laughs> um, and then we got married in um, August of 2013 after the World Cup. So, yeah, that's how we met and how our rugby kind of worlds collided, right? And then in terms of, you know, how she showed up for me athletically is, I mean, we, we just started dating when I was offered the full-time contract, but um, she was incredibly supportive of that, of me raising my hand and, and just taking that risk. And and then right when we were, di or when I was diagnosed, it was just in time for our first year anniversary wow. as a married couple. So that is incredibly not how you would imagine your wedding to go, or I guess your like marriage path yeah, to go. Yeah, absolutely. But she was incredible. I think, you know, one of the quotes that she'll probably say is 
and that sticks out to me is you have to be at your best when things are at their worst. And that's a quote that her dad gave her. And she really embodied that, I think, as my partner and wife. And, you know, she was so strong and steady and reliant and just an incredible advocate for my health and for next steps. And I told everyone I was going to make it back to the Olympics. And during cancer treatment, I mean, I threw my USA jersey over my IV pole and I had this whole system in place, you know, before chemo um, treatment. I would be in Carol and um, some of my teammates would walk around the hospital outside. It's about a two mile loop and my USA jersey on it and just go, you know, and to me, that was one step closer to the Olympics, even though I couldn't train, I couldn't play. In my mind, that was really a part of that. I know like all the back chatter was like, hey, like Jillian doesn't really think she's going to make it to the Olympics, right? And Carol's like, hey, <laughs> I don't, I, I believe in her 100% and she, yeah. she can set her mind to, to doing that. And I feel grateful that she never, you know, derailed me from that unrealistic optimism at the time. But I was very, <laughs> I'm glad I was. And I created that walking system. I asked for a prescription from my physical therapist, right? Because I was adamant that I was going to be able to do something so that when I did get out of treatment, I had a better foundation. And when you play rugby for a long time, you have chronic stuff, you know, yeah. your shoulders, your neck. I mean, there's always some sort of imbalance that you can work on. And so for me, that was just, you know, a little step for forward and and thinking about how is I, I going to rehab and get back to the Olympic training center. That's incredible. It sounds like a major difference mentally and emotionally from, you know, breaking your neck and coming back to that to how you approach cancer treatment. Yeah, and it was. I mean, I had much more experience, I think, um, handling adversity, um, especially when it derails you from, you know, your athletic career. So in a lot of ways, I think it was a little bit different. And I knew that, you know, one of the ways that I got out of my kind of darkness in my neck injury was to think less about myself and more about what can I control now. I had a meditation practice already as an athlete and that really helped me in my treatment just by staying present and honoring that space and that time, like trusting that you'll get there if, if, if that's what's going to happen. So trust the weight, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so you start going through chemo. How far out is this goal of being at the Olympics? Oh, mm. so I guess if I was diagnosed in 2014, I finished treatment, I want to say April of 2015. And then I moved back to the Olympic Training Center um, September or October of 2015, giving me less than a year to make it back to the Olympics. Wow. Yeah. Because the Olympics, uh, it was uh, summer of 2016. Yeah, right? August. Mm -hmm. August. So from you finish chemo April 2015 and you wind up making it to the Olympics in August. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is a little, sometimes when I think about it, I'm like, how did you even do that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so. And I remember watching you because we, we knew each other from the fitness community and when you were going through this, it was uh, it was a big deal. Everyone knew about it. Everyone was rooting for you. And when you made it back to the Olympics, everyone was watching. And I mean, it was a big storyline. Yeah, uh, yeah. During the Olympics, I mean, it's it was incredibly inspiring. What was the reception like from your team as you came back from chemo and moved back to the Olympic Training Center and and went got to it? 
I'll backtrack a little bit and talk about the global community of rugby and why I think rugby is incredibly special. And when I found out about my diagnosis and and USA Rugby made that announcement, right, the entire rugby community, you know, came to support me. And they did a massive fundraiser to help offset my travel costs to Houston. And they, I mean, you could probably YouTube it. There's a a support video from every women's rugby team and they would pass the ball you know, on screen, right, to the other team in the other country. And they would catch it and they would say, you know, hey, we're thinking about you. We know you can make it to Rio, you know, and it's probably a, you know, three to five minute video of messages of support. And not just that, right, is they, so sarcoma is like a yellow ribbon. And so all the athletes would have, you know, yellow tape on their boots or yellow tape on their wrist, you know, kind of honoring that space and, and my diagnosis and periodically would just touch base, you know, New Zealand, Australia, England, Japan, Russia, I mean, you name it. Every country would reach out to me and say, hey, we're thinking about you and send me messages of good luck and you're in my thoughts and prayers, right? And so, not, and not just the, the women, right, but primarily the women, but the men too, um, from a global aspect. And so that, that's really pretty incredible that we had that kind of support around the world. It's amazing. Yeah. So in that year of treatment, I would say I was incredibly blessed with that support system because it was it was incredible. It was unbelievable. You know, I just hope that, you know, if this happens to any anyone else in the rugby community or any other sporting community or any community that people can rally the way that they did, because I'll tell you those messages and those videos, they, they really worked when you're having a hard day. Yeah, I can imagine. And so what was the reception like when you're back at the Olympic Training Center? It was good. This is a complicated discussion point, right? Because I was brought back from our uh, former head coach, Rick Suggett, who passed away a few years ago, but he was terminated shortly after I came back. And USA Rugby hired another coach to come in and that that creates a little bit of transition and turbulence, not really sure who's going to stay or go and if they can perceive you having value or not. And then um, after that coaching change, we did go through another coaching change. So we had lots of coaching changes, personnel changes. and All in the span of a year? Oh, yes. In the span. Yeah. Yeah. It was was a really... Tough time for Team USA for for women's rugby um, leading up to the Olympics, and wow. so you can imagine that that kind of turmoil can create a lot of different levels of hostility and acceptance and support, you know, because of the pressure and you know everything that everyone sacrifices to be there. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So, how do you handle that? Psychologically, I mean, you're, you've gone through this incredibly challenging experience coming through chemo. You've got you got the invite back. You've got three different coaches. <laughs> everyone's everyone's vying for limited spots. Yeah. How do you deal with that day in day out? Yeah, I think um, you know finding joy in the process, and you know, I think I was so grateful that I had made it back to the Olympic Training Center. That for me, I just played the game of my life, literally. Yeah. You know, and so this was a nice to have, but certainly it wasn't something that I was holding on too tightly to. I think that gave me a lot of um, ability to separate myself from so much of that contentious environment. You know, and I'd say that that there wasn't positivity and there wasn't times of of good in in the year leading up to Rio, but it was certainly difficult. So, do you think, you know, but for what you went through, creating that 
appreciation for that, that kind of mindset of I'm, I'm just so happy to be here, so happy to be going through the process. Would you have had a sort of a similar mindset if uh, you hadn't gone through what you went through? Yeah, I think I think I had much more gratitude for my yeah. position. I'd like to think that I would have some based on my neck injury, but you know, you can get so blinded and, yeah. you know, Olympians are hyper-focused as you can imagine. They should be right. Cause that's yeah. how we went gold. And, but it can be a detriment sometimes when you, when you do that. So I was, yeah. I think I was a, like lucky enough that I could step back and say, Hey, I'm, I'm grateful for this. I'm, I'm still having fun. There were some days I didn't have fun. Right. But for the most part, I felt like, you know, the reason that I was back was my hope was to inspire others that were trying to overcome cancer or an injury or something that derailed them from their career, whether it's sports or life or whatever, that they can do the impossible, right? They can come back and still live their dreams and live their life with uncertainty. At what point in the process did you know you were going to Rio? Oh, not until late. I mean, July, July of 2016. Okay, so the month before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I still wouldn't let anyone call me an Olympian until I walked out on the field and I or ran out on the field. And I remember Carol was like, you just made the team. Like, you're an Olympian. I was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm not there yet. It's not happening yeah. yet. So I don't never want to, like, count until it's true. And I wasn't going to accept the title. Wow. <laughs> so. And so they they wait that long to choose who's going to Rio? You know, I think it would depend on the coaching staff. So not every okay. team or every sport, you know, has that kind of a deadline, you know, or a time duration. So to speak, I think I would expect that the Tokyo team might be announced earlier. I think there's a lot of benefit to announcing the team earlier just for, you know, consistent preparation and things like that. But yeah, I think it just depends on the governing body and the coach and their agreement with the USOPC. And there's too many uh, variables to say, this is the time that you have to announce. So can you sort of paint the picture of the day or the moment that you found out that you were selected? No. (laughs) (laughs) But what I can remember is uh, running out on the field for the first time. It's interesting because, you know, we talked about you know, how I, or we, you know, pulled my USA jersey over the IV pole. But some of the things that I also did during treatment was I spent a lot of time visualizing, you know, and visualizing myself running onto the Olympic field and what that would feel like, you know, who we were playing against, what what I might say to my teammates in the tunnel. And I would just imagine, okay, this is where I'm waking up. I always make my bed on game. I always make my bed. Period. But I was super, you know, ritual focused on game days, you know, um, make my bed, pack my bag. This is what I eat for breakfast. You imagine yourself getting on the bus, driving to the field, going to the locker room, right? You're doing your whole daily routine and then trying to really solicit the emotions that you would feel if you were there in real life. And I visualized myself going to the Olympics every day. And I would spend hours doing it every day and going through this process of, you know, what I would be doing if I were realizing that dream. So when I ran out on the field, it was exactly how I pictured it, right? And I was just smiling. (laughs) I said, hey, like, this is pretty unbelievable. And I ran out and I was like, this is, this is great. This is the feeling that I have been imagining for so long was coming to life. And so that was really powerful for me. Wow. And how did that first game go? That was against Fiji, and <laughs> it was a tough game. We actually lost that game. 
So, you know, you got to think this is the first time ever for women's rugby to be showcased at the Olympics. And the first time ever that women's rugby was going to be seen by millions of people at one time, right? And the very first kickoff, the very first match. And so there was a lot of, and Fiji is a tough team. You know, they're so dynamic and so, so strong and fast. And they play with a very loose, unstructured style. And so they're probably, to me, the one of the, more challenging teams because they're unpredictable in the best way. I think with the, our nerves and, and kind of the opposition, we ended up losing that game, but we're able to bounce back and pull play to make it towards the quarterfinals. And you know, we lost by one to, I don't know if it was a try, but we lost, uh, we had a pretty tight game against all, um, all Blacks and um, they were the silver medalists and we actually tied the gold medalists. So yeah, I mean, when you're there, it's like the 1% of the 1%, right? Like that's what differentiates gold and silver. And I think we definitely had all the pieces there to win a medal in Rio. But, you know, looking back on, on the year leading up to the Olympics, I think having not had that turbulence, we probably would have done much better. Yeah. What was the reception like from the international rugby community with you there? Oh, amazing. I mean, yeah. honestly... I can be more thankful for all of the women involved and, and my com- comeback. And, you know, I think the coolest thing about, you know, this Olympic journey in 2016 is for me, of course, I wanted to win a gold medal, right? But I was so proud of every woman and every country there. So just to be there, right? Because we were pioneers for women's rugby for our, for our respective country and for the world at large. And, you know, you see each other kind of grow, Right. So imagine in 2012, the Olympic announcement happened. And so you'll have countries like USA, New Zealand, Australia, you know, rally, put money into the program, make it professional. And you start playing against certain players over and over again. And you see them evolve as players, as leaders, as humans. Right. And you develop a relationship with them. And so for me, it was just it didn't matter if we won gold because I think all of us did in a lot of ways, you know, and I was just so proud to be part of that movement for women's rugby and, you know, just the Olympics in general. I think the electricity feeling that you feel that different people from all walks of life, you know, representing whatever discipline they're in, coming together in one place to compete. I mean, it certainly gives you that feeling of hope and belief in peace and something better in the world. So yeah, it's, it's incredible. Were you able to explore other other sports or other be able to, to be a spectator at all while you were there? That wasn't on my list. To be honest, I think uh, I was ready to go home. I was ready yeah. to be done. <laughs> you know, um, there there was the option, surely. We had tickets and things like that. Um, you have like your Olympics and then you have a couple media days that you need to spend some time doing stuff. And I got to explore Rio with, with Carol and um, do that. But after that, after those two days, I was like, nah. It's time. It's time for me to go um, home, you know, and, and take a break. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like I said, you're so hyper-focused and I certainly was, right? Uh, sure. In a lot of ways. And I, I definitely needed that break to have some space. After that, what was your relationship with rugby like? Did you keep playing for a while? I hope to. I was hoping yeah. that I could retire in 2018 or, you know, maybe give another Olympics a, a shot, but I was re-diagnosed with cancer in December of 2016. So not, not long after representing Team USA in Rio. So September, October, yeah, three months later. The same sarcoma? Yep. Same cancer, same original location. So it was a local recurrence. And this time the treatment was much, much harder. I think uh, we, because it came back, we had to go through 
clinical trials because it's rare and you can't just like throw yourself back. I mean, you could just throw yourself back into chemo, but you kind of want it not to come back and you're, you're willing to do a trial to, yeah. you know, maybe push the odds that it wouldn't. And then we had a year of chemotherapy after that, um, following that trial. And there was a lot of ups and downs, I think. I think I almost died like three times. I mean, no joke. Yeah, that, yeah. that happened. But, you know, it came back and it was okay. And, and that time I said, you know, maybe I can't play rugby again, right? Maybe uh, that's not in the cards for me, at least not at the, the level that I wanted to play at. So yeah. my next uh, goal was to make um, the Olympics as a referee. And I started refereeing and let's see, I finished treatment in January of 2018. And I was able to referee or assistant referee in the 2018 World Cup in July of 2018, which is pretty cool. I think my hope was that I would be, you know, go heading towards 2020 as a ref or as an Olympic referee and kind of really show that this is a viable pathway for players to consider if they want to be in the Olympics. You know, you don't have to just be Olympian rugby player. You can be anyone that says, hey, I want to be a referee, you know, and it's an incredible opportunity, I think, for, for people to kind of fall into and, and see that it's competitive. There's a lot of fitness involved, a lot of knowledge to be had, and a lot of room for growth and opportunity in refereeing alone. So I went for it. And then after assistant refereeing and the World Cup, my body was like, this is really hard, Julian. The, the, the amount of like physical proudness you need to, to be yeah. at that level. If you're a player, referee, whatever, it, it puts a lot on your body. And mm. so my body was not cooperating very well. And I kind of, I had to pull back my aspirations for refereeing and um, I can still referee on the club level and like at a certain level that would be wise for my fitness now. But, you know, kind of, you know, moving away from that too. I think I was thinking that rugby would save me again in a lot of ways. And it goes back to not quite willing to let go of the, of the sport and the things that it's given me, you know, it's, it's hard. There's a lot of comfort in what, you know. Sure. It's gotten you through a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and having to transition out of that was certainly difficult. But I feel like I'm in a really good place now with rugby and I feel like I have a healthy relationship with it, but it certainly is not so much near me anymore. Did the goal of refereeing, did that help you get through chemo the same way the the goal of reaching the Olympics did the first time? Not as much, I would say. Um, it was more of, for Carol and I, what our next step in life was. You know, yeah. I know we wanted to have a family and kind of take that path. So that was kind of my focus. And really it was much harder not to have that a big overarching goal. Not to say that my family wasn't, right? It was more nebulous than specific. Yeah. But yeah, having the thought of Carol and a family and the potential of refereeing would have been nice, but it was different. Yeah. Not so focused, right? Like I didn't throw a USA jersey on my IV pole. I didn't do visualization. I still did my meditation and physical therapy, acupuncture, like all the other things that really helped me, but less, less mental gain, I would say. Okay. Did that make it harder? Yeah. Actually, yeah. you know, thinking about that, I wonder if I had done better visualization of how I envisioned my life as a mom or as a wife or as whatever, that probably would have helped me, you know? So I, I do think that that kind of mindset is necessary to help. 
And that could just be your purpose. You know, it doesn't right. have to be a goal or an aspiration. It is, you know, what makes you wake up every day. You know, what yeah. really drives that passion for you. And so how do you think about that in terms of being a mom now and the lessons that you want to pass on around sort of overcoming adversity and the the challenges that everyone's bound to encounter in life in one way or another? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it would be to empower others to boldly embrace uncertainty. I think when you can, you know, accept impermanence and lead with vulnerability and trust the weight and trust the process and I think that's that's part of it too, right? It's not getting so hung up in the outcome per se and, and the pressures of life and the expectations, right? By kind of taking a breath and having gratitude and compassion for yourself. I think that's one of the, also the things that I learned from my cancer diagnosis is having much more capacity for self-compassion and allowing myself to struggle and, and be in that space. Like as an example, when I was running for rugby, I guess the fitness test, you know, you can say you have to run a mile really fast, like say six minute mile pace. And when I was coming back from treatment, I was running a mile in like 12, 13 minutes, right? And oh. I remember running it and thinking and crying and sobbing right afterwards. And Carol ran with me and she's like, you can't keep doing this to yourself. You've got to be kind to yourself and honor the space that you're in right now. Because if you keep yeah. blaming yourself, you're going to just it's not the mental aspect that you need to keep moving forward, right? And so I really use that in my life now. And I hope that, you know, with Augie, our son, that I can show him, you know, how to have more self-compassion and kindness to yourself, to others, and, you know, really relishing the, the process and the journey, you know, and, and less hung up on if you win a gold medal or not. Raising yeah. your hand, taking the risk, saying, I'm, I want to do this. You got to. Yeah. You got to keep shooting for the stars, man. Celebrate the risk as opposed to the outcome. Absolutely. Celebrate the risk. And you stepping into that vulnerability, right? I think those are the celebrations that need to be had, that you need to have. That's really cool. I think it's, that's something a lot of very driven people deal with, right? Is that how do you, how do you make space for that self-compassion as opposed to just being your own worst critic? And there's a place for that, right? There's a place for you to have some critique, but doing so in a way that's constructive. For me, something that we always did was, you know, take away the positives, take away your strengths. Because if you can focus on your strengths, you can acknowledge where you messed up and, you know, work on your deficiencies. But I'm very much of like a 90-10 rule, like 90% focus on your strengths, 10% focus on what you can improve on. You know, you're going to be much happier. Um, You're going to perform a lot better if you're playing through your strengths. Another example, right? So I told you before that I was the slowest person on the sevens team. And no one thought I would be on the sevens team because I was slow or slow. I wasn't like yeah. slow, but <laughs> <laughs> um, and I spent years. You're the slowest fast person. Yes. <laughs> I spent years trying to get faster. Countless hours, extra speed sessions. I had extra like another speed coach. I did everything under the sun to get faster. And I just wasn't getting faster. And I uh, finally talked to my coach. He's like, Jillian, why are you spinning your wheels here? You are the fittest player here. So can you focus on that? And also, like, what are the things that you're really great at? That's what we want you to be. You know, we don't want you to be something else. We want you to be here for what you're good at, right? That's, mm-hmm. you know, your support, keeping the ball, creating turnover ball, catching kickoffs, right? That's why we have you here. So focus on those things. Start thinking about which ones specifically can I be the best in the world at? 
you can't be the best in the world at everything. Yeah. You can't be the fastest and the fittest and the best at A and B and C and D. No, <laughs> but you can be one or two. Yeah. And so when, when you're at that level and you're comparing yourself, not just like competitively across Team USA, but how can you set Team USA up to win a gold medal? It's you have to look beyond, right? Yeah. And say, am I playing to my strengths and how can I refine those strengths to be some of the best? Yeah, it reminds me of a, a Ray Dalio quote that I love. He says, you know, in this life, you can have anything you want. You just can't have everything you want. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and sometimes we don't know, right? right. And we just keep thinking we need to do that or not. But And having, I didn't say that it's wasteful to have spun my wheels trying to get faster, sure. right? Because there's no time wasted. I mean, I guess there is time wasted, but really there's value in going through that. And learning that lesson. And everyone's going to be there at some point. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the transition been like from being a professional athlete to now? I know you're at EY doing the corporate thing. How has that been? What's that shift been like for you? That's a good question. I think it's been different. I think, you know, when I think of communication, this is always something I need to improve on, but for athletes in particular, you're very good at just-in-time communication and it doesn't have to be perfect because I just have to give you the message immediately so that you understand what's happening in the flow of the game. And so this is something I've been working on in my personal life (laughs) and my professional life, fine-tuning my communication. So that's been a growth opportunity for me. And then... I think I one of the reasons I, I joined EY was this. It is very much of a, a team atmosphere in the design lab and where I'm at, where I'm um, working and having this value of continuous learning. And I love that. It's like you're not complacent in learning. You always can read more, learn more, upskill differently or take a completely different path. But they encourage you to explore and to learn. You know, and I didn't even know that was a thing in in corporate world. You know, and I was like, oh, that kind of sounds like me. You know, like, (laughs) like, I want to do that. You know, and so it's been really nice having that freedom and kind of availability to see where I might fit in in the corporate world. I'm still trying to figure that out. And I think one of the things that I've learned from from sport is kind of this attitude of, you know, team first and, and leaving the, you know, jersey better than you found it, right? Or like playing the role that you need to play for your team. And so when I'm on my project team, I'm new, I know nothing, right? <laughs> you kind of take this bench player aspect or mentality. I, you know, in rugby, I called it the impact player mindset. And so you can either sit on the bench and think of, God, I wish I could be playing, right? Like I'm so bored, blah, blah, blah. I hate this. I'm on the bench. Or you can watch the game strategically and analyze the opportunity that if you were going to go in, what kind of impact would you have? Right. So from bench player mindset to impact player mindset to now an EY is this utility player mindset where I'm on the bench, I'm here in the meeting, I'm listening, I'm observing, I'm learning. And then I can raise my hand and say, hey, can I try this? Or how can I add value for you? How can I support you? Or what does support look like? And just kind of take that stance. And that's that's where I'm at right now is kind of that utility player, eager and willing, um, willing to make mistakes and, and fumble, um, raising my hand to take opportunities, right? And stretching myself. So that's kind of the things that I feel like have transferred well in my athletic career to now. That's awesome. I I think that's a powerful insight. Something that we see on our teams all the time is 
if you've got a, a team member who maybe has aspirations of doing something different or doing it at a, at a higher level, the difference between someone who is just focused on being the best coworker and teammate possible and, and sort of waiting for those opportunities for, hey, when I get my shot, I know I'm going to crush it. But in the meantime, I'm just going to be the best possible teammate versus the ones that you know are going to maybe sit there and stew about it and let everyone know that they're dissatisfied. I mean, it's a it's a night and day difference, right? Yeah, and and you know, I, for me, one of the things I started doing is from an athlete perspective. You know, you watch film, you're able to analyze yourself and able to journal and and make notes and things like that. And I've started doing that in the workplace. And so every day I, I journal and I self reflect and think, okay, these are the things I did well today. And mm-hmm. Here's a thing that I think I could improve upon. And even though it's it's a broad stroke and it's not as clearly defined as it would be in my athletic career um, right now, it gives me this sense of I'm documenting, you know, areas that I'm doing things well at, you know, and yeah. I'm focusing on those. But I'm also saying here it was an area that needs some improvement. This is what happened afterwards, right? You can kind of journal these things. And I think that's an important practice to have, you know, is kind of that moment of self-reflection and you know, beyond meditation, right? So meditate (laughs) and have a self-reflection practice. So I'm not like the best at it. I I certainly am trying to be more in tune to it, but it takes practice, right? It's like that saying, if you want to write a book, you better start writing. You know, (laughs) if you want to be more self-reflective, you got to start doing it. You have to make time for it and prioritize it. That's cool. And so EY has a program for retired Olympians, right? That, that, that you joined and that's how you started with them? Yeah, that's right. Um, it's the Elite Athlete Network. It was founded in 2016, just with that idea in mind to help retiring athletes transition from their athletic career to one in the business world. Mm-hmm. And they value our soft skills, like our leadership skills, our teamwork, our perseverance, resilience, you know, all those kind of um, soft skills that you might find in an athlete. So, and say, hey, we'll teach you all the technical stuff and we'll give yeah. you all a bunch of learning opportunities too. So that's been really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. It's something that you read about a lot, how often Olympians really struggle after either the Olympics are over, after their careers are over. You know, I've seen a bunch of articles about this on how the level of depression that that spikes as soon as the Olympics are over because you spend all this time really focused on a very specific domain and then it's done. It's over. And then you're like, well, what do I do now? Yeah, yeah. And not just that, right? It's, uh, um, I mean, you said it. I mean, that that's, you know, right on. And this idea of, media and like fans and just this attention yeah where you are literally the hero of team usa and let's say you won a gold medal and then two weeks later no one knows your name unless you're someone like serena williams or simone or michael phelps right which is the one percent of the already existing one percent but you gotta think of all the other olympians and all different kinds of disciplines you know, and they spend their their years, you know, really going for this outcome, and they'll either achieve it or not. They'll get a lot of attention for it, and then mm-hmm. it becomes obsolete. And yeah. you know, your body can only do it for so long, right? <laughs> um, and I felt like, honestly, I felt like I had it all together. I had hobbies outside of rugby. I was super into coffee, into yoga, into different things. I thought like I had my MBA done. 
before the Olympics. And I felt like I was balanced. And then I still had that same depressive crash. So yeah, I mean, it's real and it's hard and it can hit you at different times. I think for me, it hit me a little bit later because I was fighting cancer again. Sure. So it, it became, that became my focus. But then after that, and especially when my body started to like the rugby wasn't you know there anymore for me, at least in the way that I imagined it to be, then, then it then came the depression and, and the really hard transition. And what got you through that, I guess, other than time? Being curious and open to exploring different things. Yeah. You know, I think um, going out and trying things that are new or just something that you've never done, right? Like just taking the chance and the time, right? Like trusting the weight, trusting the time, trusting where you are to kind of explore and have that freedom to really find that you, that new you, you know, and how you want to define yourself, how you want to spend your time and I think a lot of us, even me too, you're like, I just got to move on to the next step. And sometimes I think that's hard because you might not like it. You know, and yeah. it, only, <laughs> it only adds like to the weight of the, the loss of, of your sport, right? Or like sure. that transition. So I think right away, you know, go out there and be okay, trying new things and going down a path and saying, you know what? I don't think this is for me and pivoting and moving and just having a more curious and exploratory mindset, I think helps with the transition. That's great. I'd love to ask you, cause I'm, I'm curious about sort of the nature of, of partnership as you go through the adversity. I know that, that Carol was diagnosed with cancer as well. What was that like for you with the, the tables being turned there and how you navigated that? To me, it was just kind of, a disbelief that I could, I knew the fear that was there for her. And I think in her mind, it wasn't of the same level. Like when you think if I were cancer to sarcoma and prognostically and, you know, severity, it's much different, but the, the trauma and the realization of life and cancer and everything, right. It doesn't have to be cancer to be anything is now in your face front and center, you know? Yeah. So it's still there regardless of whatever trauma that is for someone. We've all been there or we will always, all of us would get there at some point. So I knew that was happening for her. And I just remember telling myself like, okay, you know, this is your time to take the support role. And I did everything I could to support Carol and her treatment and her surgery. But it was, it was different. It was scary, I think, yeah. because I was worried about, you know, what happens if she has cancer and I have cancer. I think I had a lung nodule at the time that we were watching when uh, she was diagnosed. And in my mind, I was like, what if we're both, and we had a new baby. So what, yeah. what if we both have to go through chemotherapy? So there was a little bit of that kind of fear initially, but, but we made it, we made it through, you know, and it was, I still can't believe it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it's she, crazy. We were, she was so young too. And she had, uh, you know, thyroid, so head and neck cancer. Um, the fact that I have head and neck cancer, you think that like, it can't be that close. Like it was pretty bizarre. Wow. It sounds like you're both healthy now. Yeah. I just got my scans last week. And so I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Um, I am clear for the next three months. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. 
so yeah, I mean, it's it's been good. I, I think Carol, I think, got her scans pretty recently as well, and it's just that sigh of release, you know, where you can just okay, that umbrella, that that cloud that will always be there. How do you move forward from that? You know, even sure. even that weight, and I think that's just staying present and leaning on some of the things that we talked about today, like accepting impermanence, right? Like sharing compassion generously, like being present, having yeah. gratitude. You know, all of those things, I think, make for a more fulfilled life. Absolutely. I think it, it goes back to one of those those first lessons that you learned with your broken neck, right? It's like the only thing that you can control is how you respond. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it makes me think of that book that we read. You're the one who gave it to us. Oh, Man's Search for Meaning. Yes, yes. Yeah, Victor Frankl, one mm-hmm. of my favorites. Now, he has a really famous quote that you probably know it memorized, I bet. What's one of the quotes that you know from him? Certainly he has one about someone can take everything from you, but they can't uh, your your freedom to respond to the yes. situation. Yeah. I that's mean, that's it, right? But yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just it. Or the other one is, uh, what is to give light must endure burning. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> he's got a lot of good ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of good quotes in there. And I think, you know, it, it kind of goes back to, you know, you have that power and no one can take that from you. And that's important to realize, even if you're on your deathbed and things are going downhill. I think there's um, so many things for me had to go right. Like my, the card, the I guess the hand that I was playing had to be the right cards because yeah. someone else with sarcoma, my age, you know, might have a whole different prognostic outcome, right? And just mine just happened to be responsive to chemo and happened to be all these things. And it could have easily had a different outcome, right? Totally. So that's something that I always try to keep in mind is it, it, it varies by, by person, you know, regardless of your cancer or your trauma, you know, you have people that have supposedly curable cancers that pass. Absolutely. You never know what tomorrow's going to bring. No. But that's the great part about life too, right? <laughs> It'd be boring otherwise. It would be. Got to boldly embrace the uncertainty. Yes. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least today we got to have an awesome conversation and, and celebrate this, this incredible journey that you've had. Oh, I appreciate that, Mike. I'm really happy that we're such close friends and I know that we've both been through a lot together and separately in our lives. And I really admire your view on life too. So, Well, thank you, Jill. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been a lot of fun talking with you and just getting some, some wisdom from you. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, uh, if anyone wants to, I don't know, reach out, whether rugby or cancer or anything like that, is there is there a good way to to get in touch with you? Yeah, you can email me um, at Gmail or I'm not really on social media, so you yeah. can try. It's a public <laughs> handle. I can't say I'll answer, but you can try. <laughs> and honestly, Michael, if you know anyone personal, like personally, you know, you have my cell phone number. Yeah. So I'm happy to take calls and um, talk to people, too. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Jill. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. 
You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com. And you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path. And I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.